0: Hello, hello, and welcome to My Tennis Journey. Now, as you're listening today, it'd be amazing if you could hit subscribe or follow if you haven't already. Now, today we are having a coaching special around a really important topic, the challenges to coaches' mental health. And we're discussing it with a guest who's making a really positive contribution to a subject that I guess can be tricky to talk about at times. During lockdown, this sports psychologist hosted regular coach catch-ups where coaches could come together for a chance for self and collective reflection and kind of realise that a lot of the things that, that we face challenging, other people are facing challenging. Um, they really were brilliant sessions. Uh, Callum recently ran a session in aid of November where he discussed mental health and coaching. I couldn't make that session, so I thought it'd be great to, to chat to Callum. And he had kindly agreed to come on so welcome to the show
1: Callum Gowling. Thank you very much Rob, Uh, really thank you for inviting me and uh, really looking forward to having a bit of a chat around the subject which as you've kind of alluded to I think is really really important so yeah thank you for shining a little bit more of a light on it and uh, yeah look forward to to sharing anything that I've got.
0: Before we get on to, to mental health and coaching Callum you know a little on your tennis journey. Um, Did you play as a child, as a teenager? Are you still playing now? Yeah.
1: So I guess my experiences are are born out of two sets of lives, if you like. Um, You know, I used to play as a youngster, went down the kind of performance route. So I've played tennis since I was, as long as I can remember, four or five, Uh, went down the county, regional, national routes, and pursued it a little bit further, you know, at university in America, things like that. And then I kind of fell into coaching as well. Um, so when I was coaching, um, you know, I was, I was gaining certain experiences, trying to help players along a similar pathway to, to what I went down. And I always saw my role as trying to help players avoid the mistakes that I made when I, when I was a player you know it's really that was really the fundamental part of my role helping people to play tennis yes but if they wanted to achieve then i certainly had a hell of a lot of experience in what not to do so in terms of trying to help them uh, on that front uh, that's where i saw my role and, and as i was trying to do that role i saw i saw many of the players i worked with make the same mistakes i did so i don't pretend to be perfect in terms of the mental side of tennis it was always my weakness uh, when I played so that hence why I wanted to study it more and more and more and I've become very passionate about it and then as a coach um, I saw players struggling with the same kind of things that I was uh, you know pressure controlling their emotions dealing with expectations these kinds of things And, and early on in my coaching career I didn't feel very well qualified to help them so very much I'm from a tennis background, playing and coaching, um, and I've kind of used my own flaws and weaknesses as a player and as a coach, and thought, well, I wanna know more about this. If I'm gonna you know, do the best job I can with the people I work with, then it's up to me to find out a little bit more, hence why I went down back to university, did the PhD, studied sports psychology. And that kind of led me to where I am now, specifically working with tennis players, solely on the and and tennis coaches sorry but solely on the mental side of things you know how how your mindset can impact on your performance and to whatever extent that might be for each individual what not to
0: do if um if if there's anything that I've got to bring to the players that my experience as a junior it's what not to do I mean man all those subjects you've just talked about and And, you know, my behaviour as a junior player, as anyone who was in Cumbria around the uh, turn of the 70s into the 80s will tell you, you know, my behaviour, my ability to deal with pressure, my ability to move on, etc. You know, boy, oh boy. Yeah. And, and, And I hope in a way with the players I coach now, you know, the experiences that I learned can help them perhaps not make some of the, the mistakes along the way. And I know that your work is definitely, definitely helping that. So let's come on to our main subject for the day, you know, um, mental health and 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 coaching. Um, was it because of those experiences as a junior, as a young player, that that, that was therefore an area which you, you became so passionate about? And, and I totally get that from, from the playing point of view, but how about helping the coaches with their, their, you know, their
1: mental health and what the
0: challenges they're
1: facing. Yeah, very much so. And again, I think it's difficult to separate the two. Um, Obviously a lot of my early experiences were formed as a player, as a junior, and I was quite shy, not particularly confident. So always the pressure had quite a strong effect on me personally when I was trying to play. Um, But then obviously, as I grew up, I just grew into a more mature version of the same person. So I'm still that same shy person. I wouldn't classify myself as the most confident person in the world. So when I I went into the coaching world, obviously, you're in a, a position of relative authority. People are looking up to you for advice. You know, you're perceived as an expert. And sometimes that didn't always fit comfortably with me because, as I said to you before, I didn't always feel the best qualified to speak to parents, to speak to players coherently and logically about some of the challenges they were facing because I internally was thinking, well, yeah, I I can't face, I can't deal with that either. So certainly some of my coaching experiences um, working with some really, really strong players, I often felt underprepared, undercooked to help them and that then, you know, on your drive home from a day's coaching, you're reflecting on yourself, thinking, you know, am I, am I doing a good job here? Am I the best person to be talking to this person? Because I was always weak at that when I was younger. And I don't really feel like I've made many strides, although I'm older now and I've got certain insights, largely, as we kind of laughed at of what not to do. Um, I don't really feel like the expert in this. So, that for me personally as a coach um, you know, later on in life, that created quite a lot of inner conflict, if you like, with the role, that, that questioning of myself, am I the right person to be helping you? You know, that, that continued questioning of myself, should I pass this player on to a better coach who knows more than me? Um, and, you know, that over a period of years, Affected me quite deeply to the point where, you know, you know, on the drive home and then when you get home, you very you find it very difficult to switch off. So it started to affect me a little bit deeper in terms of my own confidence, my own self-esteem, because I'm doing a job, but I don't feel great at it. And, I'm, and when I come home from it, I don't feel like I've done a brilliant job. So that that started to shine a little bit of, of a light in my own personal experience that, you know, the professional line. And then going home, the personal line, they started to blur. They started to blend a little bit. And I found it very difficult to switch off, which is then when I really became passionate about reading in more and more depth about the psychology of coaching. And I started to come across descriptions from other coaches across other sports where they started to, to describe coaching as things like emotionally challenging, stressful, exhausting, exhausting confusing, foggy, complicated. All of these words were what kind of resonated with my own coaching experience, whereas coaching courses sometimes portrayed it as relatively straightforward. Um, so then when I went to go and practice those drills or those exercises or run my own sessions, I'd come away feeling, well, that was hard work. Why am I, Why is it? does it look so easy on the courses? And then when I actually go and try and do it, I feel like I'm making a mess of it. So that kind of continued self-doubt, self-reflection, if you like, led me to want to investigate it even more and just see, you know, am I the only coach out there who's thinking this is really hard? Um, Which was there, therefore, where I I gained that passion to to really start researching around the subject thoroughly. Um, And again, led me to where I am today. And I think,
0: there's there's an honesty that shines through in your your sessions, Callum, and the honesty that that's coming from yourself. You know, it it enables other coaches almost like a switch goes on where the sheen of the um, tennis coach of you know everything's everything everything's hunky dory, and you know I'll try and be as positive as I can in life but not everything's always going to be hunky-dory and I think that's the beauty of your sessions actually is that people when that switch ch- turns on they just they just open up and are honest and and that's something I found really valuable um and I think I know um you know you posted on on Facebook to ask coaches about the main challenges that they face ahead of doing the November uh special a real constant um was the work-life balance, you know. Coaching takes place in antisocial hours. This puts pressure on, on relationships. Um, you know, is there a magic formula out there, Callum, for, for coaches to overcome this challenge and and get that work-life balance right? I'm sure it's something you've discussed with lots and lots of coaches.
1: Yeah, very much so. And I think with with most challenges, unfortunately, there is no silver bullet. Um, I think you kind of, again, alluded to the fact that one of the things I found most successful about the coaching courses, whether they be on Zoom, whether they be face-to-face, is just that sense of reassurance. And I know that sounds quite simple, but I, I do feel like a lot of coaches and professionals in all areas of life, this isn't just tennis coaches, but obviously I'm a tennis coach, you're a tennis coach. We're talking about tennis coaching It does take place largely at unsociable hours. That does put pressure on your home life because you're not always there in the key moments. And, you know, that builds up that kind of thing. And I think just creating uh, avenues of communication, communication channels for coaches to talk to each other and say, yeah, you know, it's, it's causing problems at home. It is a real challenge. I am feeling fatigued. I'm not sleeping properly at night because I get in late and I eat late and I shower late and that affects my sleep and that affects me the day after. I think just those simple things. And as you say, my studies are all about the reality. I'm less interested in the idealistic versions of things because that's out there. I get that. It's aspirational. But when you actually get to the day to day nitty gritty of doing anything in life, it feels different to the nicely advertised, pristine versions that are on the internet, that are on the telly. And when you're actually that person trying to live it, sometimes it can feel very, very different. different. So therefore, as we discussed earlier, there there does become that bit of questioning of yourself. Am I doing something wrong here? Is is every other coach really well-organized and they've got their work life, they've got their family life, they've got their social life, all neatly boxed off? And I've found very useful from a selfish perspective, speaking to other coaches like yourself, just hearing that, I struggle with that sometimes. I think within psychology, acceptance is a huge term that I talk a lot about with coaches and with players. And that's not acceptance of just, yeah, you know, yeah, what can you do about it, just crack on. It's that acceptance that it's there It is a challenge that we face as coaches. There's very little we can do about it, but I think if you start to speak to other coaches and recognize, yeah, I'm not the only one, then acceptance becomes a reduction in our sensitivity. We become less sensitive sensitive to it, so we stop blaming ourselves, doubting ourselves. Yeah, we've got to, we've constantly got to work to be organized and and find an effective way a sustainable way for ourselves to live this life. Um, But I think first and foremost, is there a silver bullet? No. So what we can offer and what I'm trying to offer with these courses is to get coaches to talk to each other and say, yeah, don't worry about it. You're not doing anything wrong. It's just the nature of the job that we work evenings and weekends. Your wife may finish work at five. So therefore there's this slight conflict in terms of or imbalance in terms of the hours that we all work. I think we've just got to get a little bit more supportive of each other and reassure each other that when you're feeling that strain that stress that it's not necessarily because you're doing anything wildly wrong it's just an unfortunate consequence of this job that we do it's a fantastic job but like every job everyone does on earth there's pros and there's cons this is one of ours and we can support each other provide each other with a little bit of reassurance that if it's, if it's causing you a problem, yeah, talk about it. Uh, look at how you can structure your week, but in effect, there are challenges that come with this role that you're not alone in, in facing. And just that sense of reassurance, you're not the only one and you're certainly not doing anything wrong. It's, it's, it's part and parcel of the role. I think that's um, a huge part of what I've gained from these courses is hearing other coaches and you see it kind of trigger other coaches you say yeah that's me yeah i do that yeah me too i know what you mean i'm struggling with that and i think that in itself is a really useful mechanism to help coaches just keep perspective on on what's going on and how they're feeling and that kind of honesty
0: and sharing and realizing and and, and coping mechanisms to find a way through it because you know the, the schools aren't going to shut down so that you can teach young people during the day um, those antisocial hours are there but is there a way you can find through it to make sure that you you know you maintain and and build the relationships I think that having the knowledge that that other people are facing the same challenges and how have they um you know faced up to them rather than just not discussing it is the uh, is the key there I mean another one you, you kind of touched on it um you know that feeling of of am I good enough? Um, I guess what you'd call the imposter syndrome. Um, is that is that something that comes up in a lot of your conversations with coaches? You know, you were incredibly honest to kind of say that that that's what you were feeling earlier, Callum. But you know, are, are coaches honest enough in these forums that you're hosting to say, yeah, I, I do get this feeling that I'm not good enough, that I'm that there's that I have a load of weaknesses.
1: Um, I think, again, once you shine a light on it and lift the lid on it, people's attitudes start to soften and you can see their facial expressions relax and you see them sink into the chair, almost shoulders relax, and say, oh, yeah, thank God someone said that. And I think if you're passionate about tennis, you're passionate about being as the best tennis coach that you can be, it's only right that you ask questions of yourself you know i think that's part of being a very good professional in any walk of life can i do this better where can i improve but i think the problem that we have in in tennis coaching is we are self employed we're often out on court on our own we've got a lot of time to ourselves during the daytime where sometimes that questioning of yourself can go a little bit too far where it starts and it becomes almost an imbalance where you question yourself so much, you stop reflecting on the, the good things that you're doing or your strengths. And there becomes this negative bias, which is where it starts to become a little bit more detrimental. So again, back to the, the what I found the usefulness of the courses is, is, is having that conversation. Even if it's just one or two coaches and they hear another coach who's got 15 years worth more experience saying yeah I still feel like that every day every week I have that moment where I think could I have done that better was that was that the best I could have done I think that reassurance that it's part of being a professional it's part of being passionate about what you do you know there's very few people who I think just go through life and say yeah I'm perfect at everything because I think if you did You're probably not fully committed to self-improvement, becoming the best that you can be. So I think it's a positive, but where it becomes negative or detrimental to, to the coach themselves is where it goes that little bit too far. So I guess the aim of these courses or similar types of courses or encouraging coaches to talk to each other is to mention that a little bit sooner and to get that out in the open, that it's a healthy part of the conversation. It's a healthy part of improving. And unless you give it the time and talk to somebody about it, we're all this, you know, I think when, when you start speaking to people, we're all quite similar. When we have time to ourselves, we reflect and we think and we dwell. And like all human beings, we have a slight tendency to dwell on the negatives. So I think left, left unattended to, that, that can start to impact on the coach. You know, they think too much about what they're not doing very well rather than thinking, yeah, but I'm doing this, this and this really, really well. Um, so mm-hmm. it's really just trying to redress that balance, that questioning of yourself, which is effectively what imposter syndrome is. Am I good enough? Should I be doing this? These, these all tally very heavily with my experiences is I can say from firsthand personal experience, it's been helpful for me not in a perverse way, but to hear coaches of strong reputation, of high qualification level, of way more years experience than me say, yep, yeah, that's me as well. I feel like that. I, I find that reassuring. I find it comforting that, again, it's not just me. I'm not alone here. And there are positives to this. It's part of being passionate about what you do. And it's part of being fundamentally encouraging of self-improvement so yeah again is there a silver bullet to it no but nor do i think there should be because i think questioning yourself is positive we just need to make sure through support networks that it doesn't reach that tipping point where you just become overly critical of yourself
0: and i guess i guess callum like as you were saying a lot of people, a lot of coaches, they spend hours on court and they'll chat to the pupils and they have great relationships with the pupils, but they don't have colleagues in the same way that maybe I have in the past in offices, you know, where I've had a support network in the office because my teammates are some of my, have been some of my best friends in the world, you know, yet, yet at times coaches don't, don't have that. And I guess, as important as anything is 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 your ability to bring coaches together because when coaches come together that's when with your facilitation they're in a position to open up and people and coaches can realise that, that they're facing the same challenges as as far more experienced coaches etc etc it's, it's that facilitation isn't it I guess
1: yeah I think I think once you open up the conversation we all realise that we've all got a lot more in common than we probably first thought I think in In tennis, sometimes coaching can be quite territorial. Sometimes you can have a perception of another coach and you observe people, you know, everyone people watches. You look at a coach, they're delivering a lesson. You think, oh, he looks like he's got it all together. The lesson's going really well. He looks positive. And we have this sometimes false impression. But then, as I say, when you sit down with coaches and say, look, these are some of the things that, uh, you know, I, I struggle with on court. These are some of the things that I reflect on. Is this normal? And and I think when again when you open that up, we realise that actually we're we're all going through similar things to a greater or a lesser extent. Um, and again, when I went back to if I well sorry if I go back to my PhD when I I spoke to 50 coaches in total up and down the country, I was I only ever asked for 45 minutes of their time. I'd say most of the interviews lasted two to three hours, some five hours. Because again, once you open that, that, that valve up, that pressure valve, very often coaches just want to talk because as you rightly say, you don't often get that opportunity because when you're on court with your player, it's not really professional to unload on them. And you know, we're not always the best at communicating between clubs, between tennis centers, between other coaching teams. So what, what is there that coaches have that just provides that avenue of, of, of reflection with others? Um, so, yeah, I think that's absolutely fundamental to, to coach support and, and, and maintaining a, a satisfied and positive coaching workforce. Come on. And, and if, if people are,
0: are out there and, they, you know, they've missed the Movember uh, get-together, but they're listening to this podcast and there's coaches and they're thinking – oh yeah man you know this sounds good this 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 get together sounds good is uh, are the i know i know you did a lot of them during lockdown but are are these kind of get togethers for the coaches are they they continuing is something you're continuing to do callum and and if if coaches want to find out about them where where would they head to
1: so the specifically the ones i do yes um i run a, a CPD course called coping with coaching which provides a little bit more you know, official theoretical insight where, so that's a three hour face-to-face session. Um, and they're really, really good because, you know, I think people respond better when you're in the same room. Um, so, I, you know, I'm aiming to put one of those on a month at various venues up and down the country. Obviously, I'm trying to build a network of contacts with head coaches and, um, and, and other venues where I might be able to host these sessions the Zoom calls, like the one I'm going to do on Monday for November, um, you know, I think they were extremely popular during lockdown. Partly because you know we weren't allowed on court, and it it did provide that that avenue for coaches to get together. I think with the popularity of them, um, I do I do aim to to from January onwards of next year to put again another one of those on that's free, because I do think in terms of the mental health side of things, that that ability to, even if it's just for an hour and you don't say anything, you just sit on the Zoom call and listen to another coach who you might know, who you know has got a, an extremely strong reputation in coaching, I find that is a really useful and the feedback's been really, really like 100% positive in terms of, I just found that useful. I needed to hear that. So I think that's certainly something that I need to, put on certainly again maybe one a month a zoom call where where coaches can just log on they don't even have to say anything they can just sit there and listen and so yeah there's two avenues really there's the face-to-face delivery which is a formal cpd course so coaches would get their their license points for that via the independent learning but i think more broadly the the zoom call which i was running obviously through lockdown you know i was maybe doing one once every two weeks. And we were getting 20 to 30 coaches on each time. So I think, you know, moving into next year, I think that's something that should remain maybe once a month. Um, and, and coaches can dip in and out. But I think just to have that continued opportunity to, to receive that reassurance for whatever, whatever the subject is, uh, it doesn't matter how big or how small it is that someone can be there just to listen. I think that's hugely valuable for, for all people in life, not just tennis coaches. But again, you know, my reach is, is tennis um, and I'm passionate about tennis and, and looking after the, the welfare of tennis coaches. And I think that kind of
0: looking after the welfare of yourself, you know, when when isn't that, I see that as a wonderful thing that from a continuous professional development, you know, I can learn technical I can learn tactical. I can learn administrative stuff. I can learn marketing stuff. But the beauty of of the independent learning that the LTA has got up is that your own welfare as a coach, your own mental health, you can actually do that as part of your continuous professional development. And and I see that as a real strength of of independent learning that the LTA have have given you know wider opportunities. Um, for your development and and surely, you know, your, your own mental health and your psychological sort of know-how and understanding of, of situations. Isn't it great that that can be part of continu- continuous professional development?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I totally agree with you there, Rob, because I think coaches who are motivated and feeling positive, that can only be good for tennis and that can only be good for tennis players. And I think as a a profession, you know, um, I know the governing body are making making strides in coach education. They've had a big launch recently. But I think if we're, you know, seriously passionate about tennis, then we've got to make sure that we not only attract good people into coaching, but once we have them, we sustain their participation as coaches. Because... Um, you know, there is there is this figure that I use in some of the, co- um, the coaching seminars that I do that across coaching generally, not just tennis, 30% of coaches year on year cease their professional accreditation. Um, now, that's not just a tennis specific um, figure, but that is across sports coaching in general. And I think if we, as I say, if we're passionate about the sport, we want the best people as coaches because they're the people responsible for the children and for the players who want to enjoy this sport. So if we're going to keep those people within the sport, within coaching, then we've got to make sure that they're looked after and their needs are catered for. Um, there's lots of fantastic education out there for coaches, certainly, but I, I do feel like we can we can offer more in terms of support for the reality of coaching as I say that's where I'm really interested that's what I studied is for anyone who's interested phenomenology that's that's what my my expertise lies in which is the study of experience so as I say I my question to everyone is is really you know you're a coach that's a great job what's it like being you day to day you know running a program day to day what's it really like you know the lessons in the sunshine with your shades on that looks lovely. But what's the day-to-day running like you know what's the home life like trying to balance everything and that's where I'm really interested because I think it's the reality that has um, a, you know, a, a quite a deep and profound effect on the human being that delivers the coaching so anything that affects the human being I think we need to spend time considering um, whether we can limit that effect how we can manage that effect and what we can do once that effect has taken place how can we help the coach cope with it and I think that's fundamentally important so yeah CPD I think if it's a a human being that delivers coaching then the human being is hugely important so we've got to look after them.
0: I think that the reality the reality and I'd love to ask you a couple of questions about your work with players but you know as a coach the reality of that and and discussing it with other coaches who are facing the same challenges and and how life affirming that can be just to hear that let alone the solutions that come with it having discussed it um i would really encourage anyone who's listening you know head on over to the liquid sport psychology uh, website there'll be links on the the podcast where you you can find that um do head on over because certainly the uh, the calls and the, the the meetups that I've been involved in with those other coaches, they do turn out to be life-affirming. They do turn out to show you that people have got, uh, facing similar challenges and they come up with some ways of maybe maybe you can overcome those challenges. So yeah, I just, yeah, hugely recommend um, following up and trying to, you know, get involved with Callum Sessions. Um, now, I, I know you work with junior players a lot too, Callum, and, uh, you know, I'm the dad of, three tennis-playing children all have been to tournaments and faced the the, the challenges and pressures that come with those, uh, they've been to county training. If I know this is a ridiculous question. I know that. But if there's one <laughs> piece of advice you could give to tennis parents, what would that piece of advice be?
1: Wow. Well, that's a tough one, that, Rob. I would say, and it, it does link to coaching, is I would – In my personal experience and my personal opinion is the most important thing is to look out for the relationship between the player and the coach. And the reason I say that is when players go on their journey, whatever it might be, whether it be to to, to climb the ranks in club tennis, to reach first team, whether it's to to climb the, the performance ladder, county, regional, national, I think often what gets lost is the love of the sport when we're trying to achieve improvement when we're trying to achieve results rating ranking these things and they are part of the journey I understand that and one of the consistent phrases that comes up when I speak with coaches is the grass is always greener and I think it's it's only right that parents are always looking for A program where their son or daughter is going to be well coached and well looked after but I think sometimes in chasing that we overlook the relationship that is existing between the player and the coach currently in favor of well this this tennis club or this tennis center has a better squad of players or they have access to this tennis centre or if we play there, we can get access to funding. But fundamentally at the heart of everything, whether it's coaching or playing, lies a human being. And the coach-athlete relationship is fundamental to all athletes' journey through junior tennis. And I think prioritising the relationship between coach and athlete is really important, not only in terms of Developing the player in terms of their skills, but also as a person and harnessing their enjoyment of the game. Because, one, I guess, one of the consistent themes I have with players, um, you know, one of the reasons that parents reach out to me and say, Can you, can you speak to my son? Can you speak to my daughter? They, the parents are starting to question themselves and are we doing something wrong here? Because they used to love tennis. And now, all of a sudden, when we go to a tournament, It doesn't look very much fun. They don't look particularly happy on court. And I think if, again, in terms of coaching, if coaches can access a support mechanism to alleviate some of their concerns, then let's not forget the player, young, old, whatever, is a human being and they need that support. So it's a relationship where they feel comfortable to open up, share ideas, share worries, And that's the key thing for me that sometimes gets lost when we're, when we're rightly chasing improvement and trying to maximize the performance. I think the the relationship is often overlooked in, in, in light of chasing something else. So I would say, don't overlook the relationship between player and coach. That is fundamental to a player's improvement. And if a coach has a good relationship with a player, that player will bend over backwards to improve for their coach. And if you continually move a player from coach to coach to coach, then the player is left thinking, right, well, you know, who do I listen to? I build a connection with this coach and then I move to somebody else. That's a difficult thing for a youngster to deal with. Um, So I would say that would be my main piece of advice. There's many bits of advice I could give, but given that we're talking about coaching and junior tennis players journey through tennis, I'd say the relationship between coach and their player is fundamental to all of it. It's a really interesting
0: point, just thinking back to my own tennis journey, actually, Karen, because, you know, I grew up in Cumbria um, and had a real steady, really strong relationships with coaches uh, up there. And uh, and then I moved to Derbyshire 13 or 14. And on reflection, went through quite a series of coaches, you know, and, and it's a really interesting one, isn't it? That, you know, only such a such a such a small percentage of players are going to go on and play professionally, but the amount of time that players who who take it seriously spend with that coach, that coach has the potential to have an impact on their life skills on, on what's what, what that person grows up to become in terms of understanding of, teamwork of resilience of persistence of, of all these skills that you learn on a tennis coach that it, it that relationship if you've got a strong relationship between a coach and a pupil why would
1: you give up on that yeah good question and I and I, I don't think we should uh, and again I think it's important to to mention here I don't just mean a good relationship in terms of a coach who will just you know, do anything that the player wants. The coach has got to be equally committed to that player's journey, which is why it's so important when you do find a coach who is equally emotionally invested in the player's journey and is trying to match that dedication along the way, matching the, 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 the care in the relationship. If you find something that is that positive, that's not that common. So when you do find a relationship like that, don't give up on it. I think if you've got a coach who is committed to that journey with the player, even if there's a slight shortfall in some of the knowledge in terms of carrying them through all the different levels, if that coach is equally committed to the player's journey, that coach will grow with the player. It's a bilateral relationship. It goes both ways. It's not just the player learning from the coach. The coach learns from the player. And if, when you find that balance, it's such a powerful bond. It's such a powerful thing um, that I, I do think and I do feel quite strongly about it. Um, you know, one of my, I guess, philosophies on coaching is coaching is challenging and relationships are messy. Prioritize the connection, but embrace the mess. Any relationship is hard. If You're going to make a relationship work in any walk of life. It's gonna require trust, it's gonna require some compromise. So parents, if you found a really positive coach-athlete relationship, harness it and look after it. Don't just give up on it for something else because someone's offered you an extra squad. Yeah, here. Should every junior who is competing at a high
0: level, you know, I'm thinking county or above, regardless of age, should they be given access to a sports psychologist? Should it be in that mix alongside coaching, nutrition, strength and conditioning? You know, is, is that over-egging
1: it or what do you think? Yeah, uh, maybe I'm slightly biased, but yes. How, how we provide that access, again, I would be open to suggestions. I think at the forefront of everything is obviously the coach you know, in in their own way, coaches are sports psychologists because you're dealing with the human being on a one-to-one basis and you're seeing them at their most confident. You're seeing them at their weakest. You know, you're trying to pick them up off the floor after a bad loss. You're trying to calm them down after they've won a tournament. The coach has to take on an awful lot. And so if they, if the coach can have access to an outside expert who can share some of that, And I think that is entirely positive for both coach and player. But I also think in terms of coach education, I think there's more could be done in terms of educating coaches on the psychology side, both in terms of coaching, the psychology of coaching, but also the psychology of athletes. Because as I said, a coach who's got a good relationship with a player, it's not beyond the the wit of man to expect that coach to be on court with the player 10 hours a week 12 hours a week 15 hours a week plus seeing them at tournaments it's a lot so i think to look after the needs of the athlete to look after the needs of the player in terms of emotion control stress management management of expectations these kinds of things absolutely i think they they should have some they should have access to somebody who they can just again get some reassurance from share their problems with talk things over with to get a little bit more clarity i think that's really important away from the court because often you know when you're on court one to one with a player you, coach has got a lot of work to do technique tactics footwork all of these things so often the the emotional state or the mental state of the player through no fault of anybody's can get kind of brushed to the side because we've got a lot to get through right now so to have access whether it be an outside source like somebody like me where you can come off court and talk things over or whether we can better upskill coaches to prioritize that as part of their sessions more and more or for coaches to feel comfortable to provide that that service away from the tennis court. I think absolutely, if, again, we're talking about human beings, whether they're juniors or they're adults, human beings are at the heart of everything. So how that human being feels, do they feel positive? Do they feel negative? All of that is going to have an impact on their performance. So we absolutely should help players of whatever age understand that relationship between emotions and performance and how we provide that support. Well, yeah, we've got to make it more widely available. And can we upskill coaches so that they feel better equipped? They're already kind of doing the job, but can we make them feel a bit more comfortable in offering more and more of it? I think that is a yeah. huge Yeah, it's I think it really is.
0: And um, I think uh, it's something that that certainly, you know, I've done some work as a football coach and I see it in that sport. I see it in tennis. I see it. I think it's so important giving giving children the um, the tools to understand, um, to understand, just to understand that results aren't everything, you know, particularly on the tennis court when you see the children and, you know, they've lost a match. But they've played brilliantly. There's so many positives that you could take from it. Yet, because the the focus is so often put on result, even at such a young age, on a football pitch, on a tennis court, and the children come off mortified. And just helping them understand that results aren't everything, you know, and that we'll all face, we're not going, you can't win all the time. And and helping them understand, you know, I, I was I I quite often quote Taylor Fritz that. We saw him play at Wimbledon, yet on tour, he's won 50% of his matches. So he wins one out, you know, he only wins one out of every two and he's one of the best in the world. You know, I think these are the kind of things we can bring to players, but so often it's just the result,
1: isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And again, it kind of gets lost. Um, I put a post out a few months ago um, from some research that I I stumbled across. It's from 1929 and it's called The Rhythm of Education. A paper written by Alfred Whitehead, if anyone is interested. And basically, the rhythm of education is the reason we start doing anything, whether it be tennis, whether it be football, whether it be music, is for the love of it. So the first phase of any step within talent development is the romance phase, as Alfred Whitehead calls it. One of the problems that we have in, in coaching is we see often learning is this linear approach that you know we do one thing, let's move on to the next thing, right? We've got that, let's move on to the next thing. And often it's a holistic process. And I think that's where sometimes we lose the romance. So he back in 1929, he saw three phases to learning: romance, the love of the sport. That's why I started. Then we've got precision where I'm starting to learn some skills, I'm starting to learn some technique, and then it's integration. I'm trying to integrate my skills into competition. So there's three very distinct, very simplistic phases of learning, romance, precision, and integration. But the problem with the linear approach, and we see this quite a lot, even at orange ball, green ball, is the kid loves tennis, they start to show some promise, And by green ball, you're thinking, well, where's the romance gone? Because it's all about it's all about the results. It's all about getting selected for something. And you're thinking, hang on, you're ten. Where's the love of the game gone already? What's going on here? And it's a holistic process. And that romance, bringing it back to the coach again, the relationship, got to harness that. If the player starts playing at five, which a lot of them do, and sometimes younger. We've got to harness that romance that love of the sport because if they lose that then guess what they stop playing and if they're going to achieve any level in anything in life you've got to sustain your participation and you're not going to carry on doing something if you stop enjoying it so this holistic view it's starting to become more prominent but again there's certainly signs in terms of the competition environment that we view it a little bit too linear in that, yeah, you know, it's okay to have fun and enjoy it, but now you're national. We've got to, this is serious now. Come on, get on with it. Why, why, why are you laughing? Why are you smiling? Get, let's get serious. And yes, we've got to become disciplined. We've got to become regimented in our practice. But that, that romance, that love has to run parallel to absolutely everything. And too often, I think that's left behind in favour of, Okay, let's get this this let's get this work done. Let's chase down this result. Let's chase down this selection. And yeah, the the romance gets left behind, and then we're so, we're struggling. And this is I just
0: love that. I love that the, the way of looking at things because your relationship with a sport, your relationship with a hobby, it's not that different to a relationship with you with a person, and a. A relationship with a person, with a partner, is based on love. And, you know, if that love goes, well, you see what happens. And it isn't any different in tennis. You know, I had a question here. We've not asked it, but why did so many teenagers drop out of the game? It's because the love's gone, huh? Eh? It's because yeah. if that love has gone, because because it's gone in that linear fashion from fun to competition to serious now, come on, come on, come on, come on. If the, if, the, if the players are not smiling when they go on that court, we've got, Houston, we've got a problem. It's so, <laughs> I mean, if this was known in 1929, why isn't it
1: all about the love, Callum? <laughs> Again, it's, um, it, it's, it's been there staring us in the face for years. And you're right, just because it's sport doesn't mean to say it's this completely separate world we're borrowing from other areas of life. Anything that is worth doing is worth doing properly. I'm fully on board with that. But yeah, <clears throat> who's gonna stick at something for 20 years if after five years I'm kind of bored of it and kind of fed up with it? And that's what we're, we're sometimes losing. Whose fault is it? I don't know. But what, what we do have to address is this culture whereby there's almost this sacrifice of the fun because it's serious now. Come on, do you realise how much money we're spending on this? We haven't got time for for too much fun, because this is serious. We need a return on this investment. And as I say, the, the focus changes, our perspective changes. And part of my role, working with players, is to, it sounds really basic, it's to reconnect them back with, well, why are you playing? In the first place, why did you pick up a racket? And the reason you picked up a racket wasn't to be number one in your county. It wasn't to be number one in the country. The reason you picked up the racket is because you quite fancied a game of tennis. And the reason you kept picking the racket up was because you loved it. You loved how it made you feel. And then all of a sudden, our whole self-worth, our whole reason for playing is these little numbers on a computer screen that says, Oh, I'm really good at tennis now because the number says one. Great. Now all of a sudden the number goes down to five. Oh, I hate tennis. This is rubbish. And it's, it's just, it's, it's a skewed way of thinking. I know it's simplistic. I know there's way more to it, but again, I think if we try and overcomplicate things and try and professionalize things too soon, the enjoyment goes. And then, yeah, further down the line, if you're going to commit 20, 30, 40 hours a week to anything, you're going to have to love it. So make sure we, Safeguard that, and then we're more likely to have players at 13, 14, 15 loving the sport and just wanting hour after hour after hour not because they have to, because they want to. Brilliant, Callum. And, and I think the thing that I tie it together our
0: conversations is that if you're going to spend 20, 30, 40 hours a week coaching tennis, you need to love it. And, and what your sessions help do is bring people together. And share things so that they can keep loving it. And in terms of the players playing, bring making sure that element of fun, which which keeps the love going, is certainly something that you know I'm just going to keep trying to bring to the lessons. So, so thank you so much for your time. Thank you for like all the work you did during lockdown, which which I found just so helpful. And um, all the very best with all the sessions moving forward. But but one question I'll be fascinated to hear you answer on because. It's a question we ask everybody, but if you could go for a drink with anybody,
1: alive or dead, who would it be and why? Oh, I mean, that's a tough one. Uh, Does it have to be one? Can I have a dinner party?
0: Yeah, you can have a party. As long as you invite me, I'll be there with you.
1: Okay, well, obviously, yeah, you're there, Rob. Um, I, I, I like... I like the flawed genius. I find something quite compelling about people who succeed, but they've obviously got some flaws. Uh, I do, I find that quite fascinating. So I think one of the people would be Nick Kyrgios. Um, I really, I know some of his behavior is questionable, and I don't like it, some of it, but from a sports psychology perspective, and when I think back to my junior journey, it was all about, come on, you've got to improve your mentality. You've got to be mentally strong if you're going to do anything in this sport. So when I see people like him excelling and clearly with some fragilities, I find that kind of fascinating. So to be able to speak to somebody like him, say, how have you done it? Because you're not mentally, you're not bulletproof. How have you managed to get, you know, 15, 20 million in the bank out of this sport? I think that's really fascinating and and on a, a, a kind of a similar a similar uh note would be someone like stephen fry i love listening to stephen fry so to get two extremes of the flawed genius uh, stephen fry is obviously quite famous for having his own mental health challenges uh one he's managed to succeed i love his intellect i love listening to him speak so to sit down with nick Kyrgios, and Stephen Fry and yourself Rob over a couple of beers and for us to quiz those two and say how have you both got to where you are with some clear challenges but you've done it in two very different ways and been equally successful that's what I find quite fascinating so again a little bit more of the reality make how did you make that work for yourselves that would be I think a fascinating evening over a few pints Rob.
0: I would love it I mean I think that what I bring to the party is the flaws without the genius. Um, <laughs> yeah, me
1: too. Yeah, me too.
0: <laughs> but I would love that so much. I mean, Stephen Fry, uh, I mean, God, he just talks so passionately. and He's just such an interesting man, isn't he? And all the, the different things that he's done have been so interesting. And yeah. uh, actually, I, I had a friend who spent some time with Nick Kyrgios and, and actually said he was really lovely. Yeah, I'm So am sure
1: he is, yeah.
0: So, it, but it's fascinating, isn't he? He must be, yeah. From your perspective, I can see why it'd be the most fascinating because he's managed to get to that level with all those things going on and all those behaviours going on, and and yeah, I think I think what he needs to do, what he needs to do, is join one of your Zoom get-togethers. I think it, could be, I think it could be what takes him to the next level. I mean, <laughs> He'll be on it. He'll be happy. He'll be happy. The fun will return. Uh, Yeah, he just needs some romance in his life. That's what he (laughs) needs, yeah. Maybe. It's some romance. He needs some romance. We meet you (laughs) and Steven. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) Well, Callum, it's so lovely to chat. Thank you so much for all you do. And uh, yeah, please, if if anyone's listening, then please do head over to the Liquid Sports Psychology website, find out about Callum's uh, courses, because they are absolutely brilliant. But thank you so much for your time. And uh, yeah, look forward to catching up again soon.
1: Loved it, Rob. Thanks very much for having me.